0: basically the theme of that psalm is that the Lord though he sits high he looks low he looks on his creation and he takes care of us so we he's high above the nations but he dwells on high but he humbles himself to behold the things that are in the heavens and in the earth and that is the great thing about our God that though he dwells on high he condescends to us And the ultimate condescension of God came through Jesus Christ. whom we beheld his glory as the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. So we can take courage that although God sits high, he looks upon his creation and looks upon his people. Amen. Let us pray. We pray for God's justice this morning theme of our prayer father your justice is always carried out against your enemies Lord evil will always be punished no matter how long it takes Lord all people who hate you who hate your church who hate your name who hate principles that are derived from your holy word Lord, they all will be punished. They will have their day before you. They will have to give an account for their evil, for their rejection of you. Lord, your word says that if a man digs a pit, he will fall into it. Lord, your word in Psalm 9, 15 through 16 declares that the nations have fallen into a pit they have dug. Their feet are caught in the net they have hidden. The Lord is known by his justice. The wicked are snared by the work of their hands. Lord, though evil seems to prevail in our land, we know, Father, that one day your justice will be meted out and it will be without partiality. And, Lord, no matter the evil schemes of your enemies, your plans will never come to nothing. They will always prevail. There's no man, there's no force, there's no movement, there's no protest that can thwart your promises, no matter how powerful they may seem. Lord, as Christians, sometimes we have fear of man. We people and what we think that they can do. But Lord, man is impotent before you. Man is powerless before you. No matter how powerful our enemies may be, no matter how formidable they may seem, Lord, they cannot keep your word from coming to pass that the gates of hell will not prevail against your church. Lord, may we as believers this morning as we ponder the evil in this world and your justice, may you put all of our assurances in you for you never fail. Your word is true. Your promises will never be broken because you are the faithful God. You will punish evil and you will reward the righteous. You reward those who have endured to the end those who have not apostatized, those who have not rejected the gospel call to salvation. Lord, you will reward us, and we thank you that the same God who judges evil will reward the righteous. Lord, cause us to be righteous, cause us to be faithful to you, to not bow the knee to the wicked and demonic ideologies and philosophies of this world. Lord, give us gospel boldness. To be bold. In standing on your truth. In proclaiming your truth. Because, Father, one day. Evil may come knocking at our door. The temptation to follow the ways of the world. Are creeping around the corner for all of us. In that day. Will we stand or will we fold? Will we stand on your truth? Or will we cave to the wicked? Lord, may we have the courage and boldness to stand against evil. And may we plead for your justice, your righteousness to prevail throughout this land. Lord, we pray for this administration. It's a very evil and wicked administration that we're under, not because of political affiliation, but, Lord, simply because we have an administration who is promoting all manner of evil, all manner of debauchery, all manner of perversions of your word. And Father, we pray for repentance from our president, from his administration, from all the legislators on both sides of the aisle, Democrat and Republican and independent alike. In Congress, in cabinet positions, Lord, we pray for repentance. We pray for all of them, Father, to turn to you and be saved and escape the impending judgment that they will face for promoting evil, for rewarding evil, but punishing righteousness. We pray for repentance, Lord, from our leaders at the national level, At the state level. At the local level. We pray father that you may grant them repentance. That they may turn from their sinful ways. Their sinful legislations. Their sinful proposals. Their their sinful uh, laws that they're trying to enact. That they turn away from those father. And turn to you and be saved your word tells us to pray for all those in authority that we may live peaceful lives may all Christians everywhere pray for these people to turn to you and be saved father we pray for our brethren this morning our fellow brothers in Christ are preaching the word this morning Bob as he begins in Genesis 1 preaching about how evolution is a sinful and wicked theory and ideology as he looks at Genesis 1 and 1 where your word says in the beginning God created the heavens and earth Lord strengthen him to preach that text well We pray for all the other brethren, uh, Anthony, and Phil, and Carlton, and Corey, and Justin, and Cody. All these other brothers, Lord, who are are like-minded, and myself. Fill us with your spirit, Lord, to preach well to glorify Christ and his church and to edify the saints of God to equip us to be able to live in this world and also to proclaim the truth of the gospel. Lord, fill me with your spirit to preach this morning, to preach well. And Lord, send your spirit to illuminate the truths that we will hear this morning Make the word clear to us, Father, as we consider your justice in the midst of human evil and how your justice confronts human evil. Help us to see, Lord, that you are a just God who will confront evil and that we as believers should not be fearful. Lord, encourage us by your spirit this morning as I preach and as we hear the word of God. In Christ's name I pray, amen. Amen. We're in Esther, the seventh chapter this morning. And we are looking at when God's justice confronts human evil. This is a relatively short chapter, but. It still plays, as I said last week, like a great soap opera. Hope you all had a chance to read it ahead of time. We're going to see Haman get his uh, due punishment for the evil that he concocted. He dug a ditch that he ended up falling in himself. As I was praying from uh, Proverbs 26 and 27. That if a man digs a pit. He will fall into it. And that's what we see happening. In this passage. With Haman. So Haman is hanged Instead of Mordecai. God's justice prevailed. So this morning. We want to. With the Lord's help. Crystallize these thoughts in your mind. So, we're going to look at the text and uh, go into our introduction and observations and everything else. So, it says here so the king, and this is the second day of the banquet, by the way, as it says here in the second verse. So, the king and Haman went to dine with Queen Esther. And on the second day at the banquet of wine, The king, again, said to Esther, What is your petition, Queen Esther? It shall be granted to you. And what is your request? Up to have the kingdom. It shall be done. The Queen Esther, then rather, Queen Esther answered and said, If I have found favor in your sight, O king, and if it pleases the king, let my life be given at my petition and my people at my request. For we have been sold, my people and I, to be destroyed, to be killed, and to be annihilated. Had we been sold as male and female slaves, I would have held my tongue, although the enemy could never compensate for the king's loss. So King Ahasuerus answered and said to Queen Esther, Who is he? And where is he who would dare presume in his heart to do such a thing? I'm just imagining that's how he said it. And Esther said, the adversary and enemy is the wicked Haman. So Haman was terrified before the king and queen. Then the king arose in his wrath from the banquet of wine and went into the palace garden. But Haman stood before Esther, pleading for his life for he saw that evil was determined against him by the king when the king returned from the palace garden to the palace of the banquet of wine Haman had fallen across the couch where Esther was then the king said will he also assault the queen while I'm in the house as the word left the king's mouth they covered Haman's face now Harbona one of the eunuchs said to the king look the gallows Fifty cubits high, which Haman made for Mordecai, who spoke good on the king's behalf, is standing at the house of Haman. Then the king said, Hang him on it. I don't think I said that right. Hang him on it. So they hanged Haman on the gallows that he had prepared for Mordecai. Then the king's wrath subsided. What is the justice of God? A.W. Tozer in his great book, The Knowledge of the Holy, which is a book on the attributes of God. A.W. Tozer was a uh, famous um, 20th century preacher. Very solid brother. He says this about the doctrine of the justice of God. Bear with me. He says it is sometimes said justice requires God to do something. Refers to some act we know he will perform. This is an error of thinking as well as of speaking. For it postulates or it pretends a principle of justice outside of God. Which compels him to act in a certain way. Of course there is no such principle. If there were, it would be superior to God. For only a superior power can compel obedience. The truth is that there is not and can never be anything outside of the nature of God which can move him in the least degree. All God's reasons come from within his uncreated being. Nothing has entered the being of God from eternity, nothing has been removed and nothing has been changed. Tozer is saying here that God is unchangeable in his justice, that God cannot be persuaded by anything or anyone outside of himself to act in a way that is just. No one can say, God, do something about this, because God is not persuaded by anything outside of himself or anyone outside of himself. Tozer continues, justice when used of God is a name we give to the way God is, nothing more. And when God acts justly, he is not doing so to conform to independent criteria, but simply acting like himself in a given situation. As gold is an element in itself and can never change nor com- compromise, but is gold wherever it is found, so God is God, always, only, fully God, and can never be other than he is. Everything in the universe is good to the degree it conforms to the nature of God, and evil as it fails to do so. God in his own self-existent principle of moral equity, and when he sentences evil men or rewards the righteous, he simply acts like himself from within, uninfluenced by anything that is not himself. So Tozer is saying that when God does act in a just way, which he always does because... All the ways of God are just. He doesn't consult us to see whether we're going to agree with what he does or not. God doesn't look at the latest Pew Research poll or the latest Barna survey to see how he is going to act. God does not gauge the reaction of human beings in determining how he is going to act. God's justice is based on who he is. Is within himself. He uses his own self-existent principle, as Tozer said. And sometimes, especially in our contemporary society, you have apostate Christians, apostate denominations that teach that God is too kind. To punish people. That a good God. Cannot send people to hell. You have some people. Who believe that. But Tozer says this. About that. He says the vague. And tenuous hope. That God is too kind. To punish the ungodly. Has become a deadly drug. For the consciences. Of millions of people. It hushes their fears and allows them to practice all pleasant forms of iniquity while death draws every day nearer and the command to repent goes unregarded. He says, as responsible moral beings, we dare not so trifle with our eternal future. Those who believe that somehow God is going to be merciful to them and be kind to them when they have rejected him. And so they go out and live in all types of unrepentant sin. They have a rude awakening. That awaits them. When they believe this lie. And we look at our society. We look at our culture. And we see evil everywhere. We talk about it in our worldview, Bible studies on Wednesday nights. We live in a culture where good and righteousness is punished. And evil and lawlessness is rewarded. I was watching a sermon on AGTV this morning from John MacArthur uh, about this same thing. About... The light encroaching on the darkness. The light of Christ as King encroaching on the darkness. And MacArthur said that we live in a society where those who seek righteousness, those who do righteousness, are being called evil. Those who proclaim God's holy truth are being what they call counseled. Those who know and point out the evil that we see in this world are being called bigoted, transphobic, xenophobic, white supremacist, Christian nationalist, because we simply proclaim the righteousness of God. But in the same culture, you have evil, you have lawlessness that is being rewarded. You have people that are not being punished for rioting and burning up buildings and businesses and looting stores. They go do those things and they're never caught off in jail. In fact, you have people like our vice. President who raised bail funds to bail rioters out of jail. Why? Because we are rewarding evil. You have legislation that was proposed in Congress to codify the murdering of babies in the womb, to make it a law of the land, to make the murdering of the innocent children in the womb legal in all 50 states to codify Roe v. Wade. And that is called a good. That is the kind of society where evil is running rapid. There's always been murder and mayhem because of the fall. But it is increasing at such a rapid pace and accelerated Pace. and we christians wonder lord when will it stop the world wonders too but they don't have the answers because they worship a false god they worship the god of self they worship the god of secularism which says that there's no god that your life doesn't matter you're just a clump of cells that your life doesn't have intrinsic worth or value So the gods they pray to, as I said earlier, are impotent. They can't deliver. They won't deliver because they can't, because they're false. So their God is the government. Their God is laws and legislation which cannot change the human heart. Because as we said last Wednesday night or the Wednesday night before, You enact more laws, you're going to create more lawbreakers. Because laws cannot change human hearts. Isaiah says this in Isaiah 50, verses 20 through 23. Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. woe to those who are wise in their own eyes and prudent in their own sight the greatest god in our culture right now is the god of self personal autonomy my body my choice i can mutilate my body and change my sex That is the greatest God of our culture. And it is the greatest lie. That self is God. What you determine, your truth, what is true for you, your lived experience is what matters. But what does God say? Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes. They are foolish. It is evil. It is demonic. It is from the devil. He says, woe to mighty men at drinking wine, men rather mighty at drinking wine. Woe to men valiant for mixing intoxicating drink who justify the wicked for a bribe and take away justice from the righteous man. And that's what we see in our culture. That is the kind of evil where righteousness is being called evil, where righteousness is being punished. On social media, if you proclaim the truth, you can lose your Instagram account or your Twitter account or your Facebook account. If You can get suspended, like I was at one time from Facebook, for just proclaiming tw- uh, truth, for getting a hand slap on Twitter, for saying that a woman can't be a man and a man, that can be, man can't be a woman and that men can't get pregnant. And the world punishes that because it's righteous. So we see all this happening and we wonder, Lord, when will your justice reign? When will your justice be meted out? It will happen, saints. Looking at our passage this morning, we see the same thing. We see the evil plot that Haman concocted to annihilate the Jewish nation in the Persian Empire. His evil scheme, the edict that went out, we see that the man who concocted that plot, that the justice of God was meted out against him. This passage tells us that God's justice does confront human evil. Make no mistake about it. It will do that. Amen? That's just the introduction. What is the author's purpose of this passage? He wants us as readers to see the justice of God will always prevail against the evil schemes of those who oppose him and his people God's counsel will never fail that is what I want us to see this morning that God will punish evil what is the goal of this sermon that's us to see that what does God want to accomplish through the author again He wants us to see that God protects and saves his people through divine justice. That is what we see in action. Remember, God is always acting. God is always doing. He is the doing doer. He is always doing. He is always active. He is never passive. One sentence summary, that though God seems hidden, he is the righteous judge who will avenge his people. And what values do we see in this chapter? One, divine justice. We see through the actions of King Ahasuerus that justice against evil is total and complete with no partiality. You have to understand something. Haman was the second in charge to the king. Don't let that, he wasn't just some dude that he elevated He elevated him to prime minister. He was just as Joseph was under Pharaoh. Joseph was Pharaoh's right hand man. He was the prime minister. He was second to the king. Haman was second to King Ahasuerus. And the king didn't spare him. So we see he did it with no partiality. We'll see That play out in our implications and applications. Another value we see is the fate of the wicked. That God will destroy the wicked on that fearful, dreadful day. And there will be no second chances. We also see false repentance. That's a third value that we see. That when Haman saw the anger of the king, he took a non repentant posture of rescue toward Esther but to no avail. There was no acknowledgement of his sin. He had pity, but that pity didn't lead to repentance. So the big idea of this passage is that God's justice confronts human evil in the most surprising of ways. So let's look at an exposition of our text here. Verses 1 through 6. We see unwanted exposure to sin. We see an unwanted exposure to sin. So first we see Esther on the second day of the banquet. She goes to the king, and the king asks her, of course, her request. And the queen answered. And she found favor. Let her life be given, and she said that they had been sold, to be destroyed, to be killed, and to be annihilated. So the king had no idea; he was blindsided. He didn't know. He didn't know that when he signed that edict, that's what it was about. He was just told to put his what his seal on it. Haman came up with that edict. And the king put his seal on it, the signet ring. And that edict went out. The king was blindsided by an unwanted exposure to sin. So she said, I, my people, have been sold to be destroyed, to be killed, and to be annihilated. And that refers again to that bribe. And the thing is, Esther used the exact language from the decree from the edict I think that's found in chapter 3 she used the exact language and the king answered and said who is he and where is he who would dare presume in his heart to do such a thing he had no idea that was an unwanted exposure to sin the king didn't want that he was he was what at a banquet of wine you know, enjoying himself. And all of a sudden, bam, his wife, the queen, tells him about the edict, and the king asks, Who is he? And what did Esther say? The adversary and enemy is the wicked Haman. Man. Haman went right quick from being the king's right hand man to being the villain. Stroke. The king was exposed to sin, just like that. Haman's little pride. Remember, we saw the pride that he had. He was he was he was bragging about being invited to the banquet. You know, went home and told his his wife and his. It's a family that, you know, the queen delights to honor me. And he gets to that banquet, and he gets the big takedown. He gets suplexed off the top rope, as they used to do a wrestler. Just like that, the king is exposed to sin. And so, Haman was what? Terrified. I can only imagine the terror that he had in his heart because he knows how the king is. Those Persian kings, as I've said before, they were swift in executing people. They didn't have a judicial court like we do where you bring up witnesses and people testify on your behalf. No, justice in antiquity was swift. They didn't have due process like we do. We have due process rights here in this nation, uh, especially under the Constitution. We have due process. We have a right to defend, uh, to a defense. In this day, we didn't. They didn't. So Haman knew. That's why he was feared. I can only imagine his heart probably dropped when his name was called. You ever been in a situation like that before where you got accused of something like right down the spot and you didn't know it was gonna happen? Like in class? Teacher comes back and says, who threw that spitball? Ronald? My heart drops. Phone call is made. Ms. Matthews goes down to the office, I was in sixth grade. I threw a spit. I don't know what I was thinking. Don't ask me. Goes to the office, comes back. I called your daddy. My heart drops. (laughs) (laughs) Ms. Matthews, Mr. Haygood is here to see you. Ms. Matthews goes to the office. A couple minutes later, I hear Ms. Matthews and my father and the jingling of his belt buckle coming down the hallway. And my dad walks into that room and looked at me and said, get your butt in front of this room. He didn't ask me any questions. And he whooped me in front of class, just like that. Sixth grade, Ms. Matthew's class, Washington Public Elementary School in Tuskegee, Alabama. It was swift. As soon as I heard my name, somebody said, Ronald. My heart dropped because I knew it was over. (laughs) Haman probably didn't feel, uh, I'm sure he felt worse. But I know the feeling of being called out like, it was you. So his heart dropped. Okay. And then the king arose in his wrath. So all this is playing out. He sees the king rise up angry. But Haman stood before the queen, pleading for his life. For and why did he do it? He saw that evil was determined against him from the king, or by the king. When, he, when the king returned from the palace to the place of the banquet, Haman had fallen across the couch. <laughs> so, you know. And the king was, you know, like, really? You're going to assault the queen also? Although that's not what he was doing, but that's how angry the king was. So he had a non-repentant appeal for rescue. He was only concerned about what the punishment, not with what he did. Isn't it the way people are now? Talk about personal responsibility, as Mary was talking about earlier. People are more concerned about the punishment than for admitting what they did wrong or repenting, asking for forgiveness, pleading for the king. King, forgive me. I was wrong in uh, issuing this edict just because Mordecai wouldn't bow down to me. No repentance at all. This reminds me of Judas Iscariot. Judas after he betrayed Christ he returned to those same Roman soldiers to give those 30 pieces of silver back they didn't want it because guess what he was the tool that they used to crucify Christ and that's that's the only use they had of him he felt bad but he did not repent And in his sorrow, he hanged himself, as, as the scripture said in uh, Acts, the first chapter. He had sorrow, as Paul said, but not sorrow leading to repentance. Uh, Paul says, "Godly sorrow works repentance; worldly sorrow does not." People could be sorry for what they did, but not have a repentant heart, willing to turn away from that sin or turning away. From the attitude that leads to that sin. That's how repentance looks. Haman was just sorry because he was caught. And he knew that he was going to uh, be impaled. That's the only reason why. So it was basically non-repentance. He wasn't truly sorrowful. Peter after he denied Christ for the third time and he heard that rooster crow just as Christ said was going to happen the scripture testifies that Peter wept bitterly that was a sign of repentance and what did Christ do? Christ restored Peter we saw that in, in John the 20th chapter because Peter Repentant. He was, he wept bitterly. He was truly sorrowful in a repentant way for betraying the Lord. Because in his pride, he said, Lord, I would never betray you. And what did Jesus tell him? When the croc crows, okay, three times you will, you'll deny me. And at that third time, guess what? That cock crowed because he was pride, proud. He was arrogant, but he repented. Haman didn't do that, so he laid on the couch and and, and pleaded. And the hassle, of course, his anger perhaps blinded him. He thought that he was trying to assault the queen when he actually wasn't but that just made things worse for him. So now we see the humiliation and inevitable judgment of the proud. So as that word left the king's mouth, they covered Haman's face. And this is how they executed people. They covered their faces first. And Harbunah the eunuch, remember the, uh, apparently everybody saw the gallows that were hanging. Word probably got around about it. And look, look at the justice of God here. The gallows 50 cubits high, which Haman made for Mordecai, who spoke good on the king's behalf, is standing at the house of Haman. And what did the king say? Hang him on it. That is the inevitable judgment of the proud. The proud lay a snare, and they end up tripping on it. Remember, pride comes before destruction and a haughty spirit before the fall. That is what we see here. Pride, self worship, self adulation leads to destruction and humiliation. Because we are false gods, we don't make good gods. We will fall into humiliation when we seek that, as Haman did. So, now we turn to some gospel principles, implications, and applications. The first principle is that in Esther, we see Christ as our righteous advocate. Just as Esther goes before the king to advocate on behalf of the Jewish people, so Christ goes before God the Father as our advocate of righteousness, denouncing the power and destruction of sin over our lives. Esther went before the king to plead on behalf of her Jewish people, her fellow Jews. Christ, As our advocate. Paul says there's one advocate between God and man. The man Jesus Christ. Saints. We thank God for the advocacy of Christ. We thank God that Christ advocates for us. On our behalf. That Christ goes to God before us. And pleads our righteousness. He's our advocate of righteousness. Jesus is our only plea for the destructive enemies of Satan, sin, and death, of the world, the flesh, and the devil. Jesus is our only plea. He is our only hope before God. And we see this in Esther. She was the only hope of the Jewish people because she was closest to the king. All the other Jews were scattered throughout the empire they did not have direct access to the king as Esther did so Esther served as the plea of her people and that's why she approached the king and that is why God moved in the king's heart to allow her to come into his presence and that's why the king was able to say what is your position Queen Esther it shall be granted you Christ goes before God on our behalf as our advocate. And what is granted to Christ? Our righteousness that he gives to us. I'm sorry, what is granted to us, rather? It is the righteousness of Christ. As Christ goes before God as our advocate. That's why we pray to the Father in the name of Jesus. He's our only hope, saints. He's our only plea from the destructive enemy of Satan and sin and death and the world, the flesh and the devil. He is our plea. Principle number two in King Ahasuerus or Xerxes, we see God as the righteous king who executes his just wrath against human evil. God's wrath against human evil is just. It is always just. It always will be just. It always will be right. We see that in Ahasuerus. God is the righteous king. Although Ahasuerus is not a perfect king, he still demonstrates a type of justice that points to the perfect justice of God. Because all shadows and types are, are, are not exactly like God and like Christ. They are in some way an imperfect representative of the perfect God. God is perfectly just in that he perfectly confronts human evil with total and final judgment one day those who seem to be on top those who seem to be thriving although they are evil it reminds me of what David said in Psalm 37 fret not yourselves because of evildoers nor be envious against the workers of iniquity for they shall be soon cut down Like the grass and wither like the herb. Why do we not worry because of unbelievers? Why do we not worry when we see unbelievers prospering? Because one day, unless they repent, they're going to be what? Cut down. They're going to be cut down to size. All their worldly achievements, all their worldly acclaim, all their worldly accolades, all their worldly possessions will be cut down to nothing. Why? Because they're going to meet the just God who judges everyone according to his justice, according to his book. Not according to the subjective feelings of man who think that God will not punish anyone. That You can just go up there and kind of give him a wink, wink, and a nod, nod, and dap him up, and he's going to let you in. No we see in this passage a picture of perfect justice that those who seem to be on top will be on the bottom as Jesus said the last shall be first and the first shall be last those who are very wicked they will be brought down by the righteous judge The psalmist says this in Psalm 35, which is actually about God being the avenger of his people. King David says in that psalm, Plead my cause, O Lord, with those who strive with me. Fight against those who fight against me. He says, Let those be put to shame, and brought to dishonor who seek after my life let those be turned back and brought down to confusion who plot my hurt let them be like chaff before the wind let the angel of the Lord chase them let their way be dark and slippery and let the angel of the Lord pursue them this is a psalm about God being an avenger of his people God will destroy the wicked. And as we said in Psalm 37, again, do not be afraid of evildoers, nor be envious of the workers of iniquity, for they shall soon be cut down like the grass and wither as the green herb. Trust in the Lord, saints, and do good. Dwell in the land and feed on his faithfulness. Delight yourself also in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. Rest in the Lord, it says, and wait patiently for him. Do not fret because of him who prospers in his way, because of the man who brings wicked schemes to pass. Cease from anger anger, and forsake wrath. Do not fret, it only causes harm. For evildoers shall be cut off. But those who wait on the Lord, they shall inherit the earth. For yet a little while, and the wicked shall be no more. Indeed, you will look carefully for his place, but it shall be no more. The wicked plot against the just and gnashes at him with his teeth. The Lord laughs at him, for he sees that his day is coming. The wicked have drawn the sword and have bent the bow to cast down the poor and needy, to slay those who are of upright conduct. Their sword Shall enter their own heart, and their bows shall be broken. So we see in this song right here that God will, God will punish evil. The evil will be brought down. That's what we see happening in King Ahasuerus, and then third we see in Haman we see how human evil will be avenged. We see how the proud are brought low. We see how quickly the tables can be turned against those who scheme to destroy the Lord's people. Haman took a step-by-step path to judgment, and it began with pride beginning as we saw in chapter 3. It was a step-by-step descent into pride and self-worship and self-glory. The psalmist says in Psalm 94, O Lord, to whom vengeance belongs, O God, to whom vengeance belongs, shine forth, rise up, O judge of the earth, render punishment to the proud. Lord, how long will the wicked, how long will the wicked triumph? They utter speech and speak insolent things. All the workers of iniquity boast in themselves. They break in pieces your people, O Lord, and afflict your heritage. They slay the wicked and the stranger and murder the fatherless. Yet they say the Lord does not see, nor does the God of Jacob understand. Well, listen to what the psalmist says about the proud Yet they say the Lord does not see again, nor does the God of Jacob understand. Understand you senseless among the people. And you fools, when will you be wise? Those who think that they are smart, those who think that they are so full of pride and so sure of themselves, they are fools. They are senseless among the people. What does the Lord say? He who planted the ear, shall he not hear? He who formed the eyes. shall not hear? He not see he who instructs the nations shall he not correct he who teaches man knowledge the Lord knows the thoughts of man they are futile so these prideful people these evil people in our nation who rise up against righteousness and against God's people God sees them They just because they're not being punished right away God still sees them. They are laying down charges upon charges against their sin, account for the day of judgment. And they will be avenged just as we saw Haman avenged. That step-by-step path to judgment for the wicked begins with pride and it ends in destruction and death. That's what we see in Haman. This is a classic example of that. Implications. Number one human evil always, 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 friends, human evil always sets itself against God. Always. It reminds me of when Nathan the prophet had confronted Daniel in 2 Samuel 12 after uh, Daniel had uh, Uriah the Hittite killed when he slept with his wife Bathsheba. David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, the Lord has also put away your sin. You shall not die. However, because of this deed, You have given great occasion to the enemies of the Lord to blaspheme. The child also who was born to you shall surely die. Then Nathan departed from his home. King David, the great king. His evil had set himself against God. He says, Because your deed, you have given great occasion to the enemies of the Lord to blaspheme. David's great sin gave the enemies of God occasion to mock God. And that's what human evil does. It sets itself against God. Human evil, again, next, is self-deceptive. It allows evildoers to believe that their evil actions are justified. Because the outcomes seem to be favorable and they never seem to get tangled in their own web of deception. That's why people continue to do evil. Because they don't get caught right away. People who are caught in human evil are self-deceived. That mother who believes the lie that if you kill your baby in the womb, you're going to be fine. It's just a clump of cells. That mother is always going to be the mother of a dead child. And their conscience will not let them escape that. Because they've been self-deceived. That man who thinks that he is married to another man is self-deceived. His conscience convicts him. They believe that the action is justified because the outcomes seem to be favorable. Oh, he makes me feel good. They're self-deceived. The self-deception also comes in the form of well-being and safety, which blinds us to the glaring truth. Just because they're prospering in their evil or seeming to prosper in their evil, that perhaps through common grace, God does bless them financially to live financially well lives, to advance up the corporate uh, ladder. But just because those things happen, guess what? They think that somehow God's blessings are on my life, that, that God is approving of my sin. That's the self-deception of human evil. It blinds us to the truth. But on the final day of judgment, when the truth is revealed, the condemned will see that they have no one to blame but themselves. They will have no one to look at but themselves. Because they gave in to their self-deception. They will have to give an account. As the writer in Hebrews said in Hebrews the fourth chapter. All of us are open. No creatures hidden from God's sight. All things are naked and open to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. That's Hebrews four and thirteen. Those who are self deceived, they're gonna have to give an account one day. They can deny God all they want to, but that doesn't mean he doesn't exist. Number three, human evil does not thwart God's faithfulness. God is faithful to his covenant. He's faithful to his covenant. Again, he will deliver his people whether they are faithful or not. Second Timothy 2 Timothy 2.3, Paul says, Though we are faithless, God remains faithful. He remains faithful. God's, the the, the great thing is that God's faithfulness depends on nothing outside of himself. God's faithfulness doesn't depend on us. He's going to be faithful whether we are or not. It does not depend on us. Despite the hundreds of years of sin and rebellion that got Israel to this point in history, Guess what? God continues to demonstrate his faithfulness to the covenant that he made with Abraham in Genesis 12 and that he made to Daniel in Second Samuel. I'm, I'm sorry, David in 2 Samuel, the seventh chapter. Despite all the years of rebellion by Israel, guess what? God is still faithful to his covenant. And that's what we see here. And we thank the Lord for his faithfulness. Amen. So let's close with our applications here. Three things of encouragement. Because of God's divine justice and His covenant faithfulness, number one, there's hope for our children. It should give us great hope for our children. Our ability to raise our children will be filled with flaws. But we must still shepherd our children's hearts. God committed our children to us, and we must shepherd their hearts. How they respond is not up to us, our children or our grandchildren. How they respond is not up to us. Like Charles Stanley, one of his famous quotes is, obey God and leave the consequences to him. We shepherd our children's hearts we raise them up under the admonition of the Lord we raise them, we disciple them we can't save them but we proclaim God's truth to them and we leave it up to God to do the saving work we trust in the faithfulness of God to do what? to save our children no matter how old they are, no matter how young they are, we lead it up to God. We, 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 we pray, God, save my child, save my son, save my daughter, save my, my, my granddaughter, my grandson. And we trust in the faithfulness of God to save them. We pray that they meet the right side of justice, God's justice and not the wrong side. The justice of God that says well done good and faithful servant not the justice of God that says I never knew you depart from me we pray that our children experience the faithfulness of God in salvation number two there's great hope for the church amen for our churches we have great hope We don't have a great hope because of the wisdom and the ability that God gives us as pastors or preachers, or because of the gifts and abilities of our members. If our hope rested in those things, <laughs> it's a fool's errand. We might as well shut the door to the church right now. Our hope is in the power of the Holy Spirit working in the church. We don't rest on human resources, but our confidence rests on God's promise. To build his church in such a way that the gates of hell will not prevail against it. That is the hope that we have. That is what we rest in. That is what I rest in as a pastor. My hope rests on God's promise that he will build his church. And the gates of hell will not prevail against the living church. And the living church family. And the living church members. But we don't sit idly by. We're skilled to be active in presenting the good news of the gospel with boldness. The good news to our neighbors, our friends, our co-workers, our family members. That we present them that news and we pray with boldness, knowing that God will accomplish through his church the purposes that he set out for the church to do. Despite our shortcomings and despite our sins, we pray. And as we share the gospel, as we spread the gospel, we pray that God, through his spirit. Reveals that truth to them. Because no one can understand the truth apart from the spirit of God revealing it to them. That's first Corinthians two. So as we spread the gospel, as we share the gospel, as we share God's truth. We back it up with prayer, knowing that God will accomplish through his church what it's his purpose to do. And lastly, this gives us hope for our struggle against sin. Our hope lies not in our own progress or our own personal growth or our own strength. We cannot pull ourselves up by our own efforts. As we grow in spiritual maturity, we see our sin more. We see the deceitfulness of sin more. As we mature in Christ, we see more the depths of our depravity. We see more the deceptiveness in our hearts ever so clearly. When I was young as a Christian man, I didn't didn't think I was so great of a sinner. I didn't. 32 years later, I'm a great sinner. But he's a great savior. I see that I'm a sinner more. Not that I sin more, but I see that I'm a sinner more. I see the depths of sin and the effects of sin and I look as you grow in Christ you have to fight more and more because when you're young you think you're invincible that you're going to live forever that you don't really think about it but as you mature in the Lord you fight you learn to fight your sin more and this truth of God's justice and His faithfulness gives us hope to fight against sin more. We don't just sit back and let go and let God. No, we strive every day with every fiber of our being towards the holiness for which God has designed for us. We strive for a holy life. But we do it with confidence knowing that God will work His righteousness in us. Just as Paul said, He who has begun a a good work in you will complete it until the coming of Christ. God will perfect his work in us. Amen. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Lord, we thank you that we have the truth of a king who is utterly different from Ahasuerus. We serve a king... That doesn't have to be manipulated to do what is right. We have a king who is not consumed with himself, but looks out for the interests of others. Well, we have a king who took the charges that were due us, who took the charges of death against our sins, who bore them on himself. It was our king, Jesus Christ, who was taken and impaled on a tree. Lord, we thank you for this great king. And Lord, if your fury has been poured out in full upon Christ, there's none left for us. If our debt has been paid in full, we're free to go. But, Lord, those whose debt has not been paid, those who have not bowed the knee, Father, their destiny is one of condemnation. And, Lord, we pray this morning that as we look at your wrath against unrighteousness, your confrontation of human evil, we pray, Father, That you grant repentance to our loved ones who are unsaved, our friends who are unsaved, our co-workers who are unsaved, those in our church who are unsaved. Father, that you grant them repentance, that they turn away from their evil and turn to you and be saved, that you grant them true repentance and not false repentance. And lastly, Father, we thank you that you do confront human evil. That you will punish all evildoers. Let us rest in that hope. In Christ's name I pray, amen. Amen.